Um, and my mother really comes from a, and my father as well. They came fundamentally from this uh, this grafting uh, generation, and restaurants were made successful purely through grafting. There was really no understanding of um, bringing in outside expertise, marketing, um, PR, um, looking at um, Chinese food into the future, looking at possibly changing the way people conceptualise Chinese food within London. Andrew and I are part of a team researching and telling the history of East and Southeast Asian families in Britain and the emergence of British Chinese cuisine since the 1960s. How did it come to exist? What does British or Chinese cuisine mean? And how does one affect the other? What are the individual stories that bring this history to life? So we're starting closer to home. Over three special episodes of Exo Soust, we'll be exploring three generations of Andrew's family, all food entrepreneurs. We'll be looking at the family drama, the sibling rivalry, generational conflict, but also the love and loyalty within the Wong family clan. Here is part three, covering the period between 2008 to the current day. Okay, Andrew, let's um, let's pick up a little bit of the story from the last time we recorded. And actually, it has been a while, so um, <laughs> it may be that we need to remind ourselves about your your background. Um, but the last time we spoke. We kind of ended with um, you right on the cusp of taking on Kim's and turning it into something else. So you and Natalie had proved yourself with a couple of other places, uh, with another place that your dad had owned. Um, this is after he passed. And your mum and you were basically running the, um, or attempting to run uh, the businesses. Uh, you were coming out of catering college. You had, you you'd achieved your kind of qualifications and you turned round a noodle bar um, yourself and Natalie and you were at that moment thinking about Kim's as a new kind of place right so just take us through why or, or what were the circumstances around coming back to Kim's to think about how to make things different how to do things differently um, I think I think it's an important thing to remember that um, fundamentally I never really wanted to be a chef. I know it sounds very odd, but I always tell people this because it's the, it's the, it's the honest truth. Um, and in an ideal world, I think I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I, I left university. I was still at university when my father passed away. I was studying anthropology, which again um, isn't... Um, <laughs> necessarily a subject matter that leads to a specific career in the sense that it's very open-ended once you graduate with a degree in a social science like this and um I, I i i basically was thinking well you know i could go to law school you know that's what a lot of people on my course were doing if they weren't going to go save the world or go and do um field research somewhere um so I'd actually applied for law school and I'd gone, I'd got in and I had, um, I was due to start the conversion course at, um, I think it was the Royal College of Law or whatever it was. 
but then I kind of thought, and I, I, was, I remember this very clearly, I was on the train going to the first day induction um, for this law course, and I saw some of the other kids, well kids, some of the other candidates who were heading in the same direction, and I thought, it's not for me. Um, I, I'd been to catering college and I really thought, even when I was at catering college and while I was still working uh, with the restaurant and I was still talking, uh, spending a lot of time with the chefs in Kim's, I, I had this urge that, you know what, this building um, is slightly magical for me. You know, I'd spent so much time in that building growing up, uh, where it be because we were locked in the, in the office to do the homework when we were kids while my parents were working or we were spending special occasions there, um, or it was Chinese New Year, or it was uh, my grandfather's birthday or my grandmother's birthday. I had this kind of itch that there was something still to be done in that building. Um, and that was the only reason that we ever opened a restaurant. It wasn't about wanting to own a restaurant. It was about some unfinished business with that building that we're in now. And that fundamentally was the uh, impetus for the entire project of opening that restaurant. It was just this idea that I knew something still needed to be done in that building to kind of put my, my conscience at rest. You talked earlier, um, in earlier parts, about your father and his entrepreneurial, restless nature. And he wasn't going to... Um, kind of just let things be he was always looking for that bigger better idea and to some extent he did this slightly unilaterally right he was the big ideas man and then he'd have a team of people to kind of see it through and sometimes that also included your mother but generally there wasn't a massive discussion around the family table about what his ideas were and whether or not you guys all agreed so when you had this feeling about this unfinished business at Kim's and you started to flesh out the idea for this new venture on that site was it more of a family discussion or did you end up kind of kind of going down the same groove as your dad did it feel like a more singular vision I know it was it was it was individual jungle vision I like to call it um, it was very, very individual. You know, my wife has always been extremely supportive of anything I've wanted to do. Um, and this was this was something where I said, we're going to do it. And actually, the, the restaurant, in a, in a kind of weird kind of way, was kind of um, neglected. I think in the lead-up to us closing that restaurant uh, for uh, reopening and renovation and reconceptualization, it had been neglected and it was slowly moving in the wrong direction. Uh, because um, my mother and I had left it for other people to run. My mother was getting older at the time, and so she was running out of energy to, to deal with the day-to-day running of a restaurant. And also the, the, the setting, the landscape of running a restaurant was changing. You know, what people wanted, uh, the mentality, the entrepreneurship um, that is required to run a restaurant was slightly shifting. Um, and my mother really comes from a, and my father as well. They came fundamentally from this uh, this grafting uh, generation, and restaurants were made successful purely through grafting. There was really 
no understanding of um, bringing in outside expertise, marketing, um, PR, um, looking at um, Chinese food into the future, looking at possibly changing the way people conceptualise Chinese food within London. This stuff was never of any importance to me. It was purely about, let's supply a service that we think will work and let's just work really, really hard at making it successful. And I think that my approach to it um, was basically looking at a restaurant from a very different perspective to the way that they looked at it. So I went to my mother, I remember, I went to her and I said, look, I have this idea that I want to close a restaurant and I want to um, reopen it with this and this and I did. She didn't even listen to the conceptual side of it. She's like, look, you either do it or we just get rid of the restaurant. So good luck. And that was basic, basically it. And she never, ever really um, interfered after that point. The only thing she ever did, which she always does with anything, everything I do, was basically she moans. And uh, she moans about fundamentally expenses all the time. So I remember every time an expense came in for either a building quote, an architect, interior designer. She would just be like, mm, uncle, what's, what's his name? Didn't spend this much. Um, you know, why don't you go and ask this person to ask him to give you a quote for this? And I, I remember that um, specifically. I, 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 I didn't do this purely um, to basically go against what her advice was. But I just wanted to do things completely differently to the way they would have traditionally done them. So they would have traditionally not used an architect. They would have used one of their friends in the community who would have been like an architect builder all in one, who had built loads of other restaurants within the community. And I purposely didn't want to go down that route. I wanted to get a fresh set of eyes. Um, I wanted to tell them that I didn't want it to be... Um, the same Chinese restaurant that I had previously. I wanted it to be kind of fresher. I wanted it to have counter seating. I wanted it to have an open kitchen. I wanted the food to be the real centerpiece to the restaurant in a very relaxed, semi-dinerish kind of way, which I think sometimes if you only ever use um, architects and builders who, who are very set in their ways in, 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 in creating certain concepts, sometimes they don't quite understand it, even if they claim they do. So I basically... Um, almost shunned um, a lot of the recommendations that my mother was giving me at that time in order to try to get um, a fresh perspective on what I was trying to achieve. Mm. Now, there's a couple of things that you threw up here um, that I'd like to just drill down on. It's The first one is really when you talked about how your perspective over the restaurant scene and how it was much more about looking across and seeing also how things were changing in terms of expectations. And I can imagine that Alan Yao and um, Hakkasan and, and other um, ventures that he put out there in London and other places, they probably also were part of this context about scene setting and figuring out what expectations were placed on East Asian and Asian food in general um, at that time. You know, we're talking about 2008, eight nine, I guess, now. Um and so, yeah, I'd like a little bit more about that, if, if you can. And then also you mentioned um, this idea of having sort of almost negotiating with your mother about, you know, what is and what, what you wanted and what you didn't want and sort of going through her kind of recommended list and coming out the other end with something that you were comfortable with. Um, how, how did that work in terms of 
everyone feeling a sense of ownership of the new project. So yeah, so I guess it's a two-part question, right? The first one is, okay, what was the scene you were responding to um, in terms of the external world? And also, how did everyone, did everyone still feel they were part of the project coming out the other end when A. Wong, I guess, was launched? Sure, I think that's um, a very complicated question, as always. Uh, (laughs) I think the setting in London at that time, and again, this is very specific to London. Remember, my my knowledge on Chinese restaurant scene, when when I say things, they might come across as generalisations, but actually they're specific to the London dining scene because that is something that I grew up in. That's something that my entire family... Um, was centred around. That's all we ever spoke about. You know, my I grew up, my dad would take me to restaurants and it was like, well, this is because this, this and this. You know, these are the kind of things that are going on in, in, in the London dining scenes throughout the 80s. And at that point in time, in kind of the, as you said, post 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, that restaurant that you're talking about, Hakusan, really was the... Um, it, it was such an important part of what Chinese restaurants have become. Because I think what people, and they might take this for granted now, and I never took it for granted, is that before Hakazan, you know, there was Mr. Poon's restaurant, which was great, but it was um, it was groundbreaking, but it was still very um, traditional in 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 interior in terms of style, in terms of concept. What Hakazan did, um, which was groundbreaking, was that it it changed people's perceptions on what Chinese food could be. You know, people would have never spent that much money on Chinese food before. They would have never gone to a Chinese restaurant and seen a wine list uh, that extensive in a Chinese restaurant. They would never have gone to a Chinese restaurant and said, you know what, this is... And again, I, I, you have to take this with a pinch of salt with it. This is cool. This is contemporary. This is where I want to take my date to. This is where I want to take someone. Um, I want to take a client here to really show off, to show them the high life. And Hagazani is such an important restaurant because of this. Now, whether or not you agree with it is not important to me. Um, I think what is important is that that was basically what I was um, trying to recalibrate when we came up with this restaurant for A Wong now. It was basically the fact that at that point in time, in you know, at 2009, 2010, every new Chinese restaurant was trying to copy that Hakazan model. So it was basically the interiors all looked the same. There's kind of lack of dark wood everywhere. Um, it was like loud thudding music when you go in. The food was pretty much identical to their menu every single time. You know, it was tea smoked ribs, which is one of their signatures. Um, it was, you know, the, the Peking duck with um, caviar, I remember, on the menu. It was um, the, the, the venison puff. Every, it was like, I remember there was a duck with guava dish that they used to do. And this dish, because every new Chinese restaurant used to just steal their chefs and open more Chinese restaurants. And these Chinese chefs never really sat down to be creative themselves. They basically just copied Hakazan's menu. So these menus are just getting replicated all over London um, and, and wider, probably, uh, throughout the UK. And when I decided to open this restaurant, I'd just come back from travelling 
And it was the first time that I'd really reconnected with um, my heritage and, and China as a whole and my grandma's cuisine and, the, you know, having having this kind of really disconnected understanding of what China was. And I still have a very disconnected understanding of what China really is and what Chinese cuisine really is. Um, but I wanted it not to be that. I wanted it not to be lacquered wood, dark wood, a disco. I didn't want it to be cool. I didn't want it to be funky. I wanted it to be pure and I wanted it to be organic. And I remember when I spoke to the architects about the restaurant I wanted, I wanted it to be, um, those are the words, pure, natural and organic. I wanted it to be what Japanese food is to so many people in the West. There's... um, there, there's this real purity and there's real the cleansing quality and there's this real kind of holistic quality to it, uh, to Japanese cuisine or what what it stands for in 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 Western perceptions, and I've I, and I at that point in time and I that's one of the things that still sticks with me now and it's still still one of the things that I try to um, implement in our cuisine, ten years up down the line now is we're trying to make Chinese food. Um, pure you know in the sense that we're trying to use recipes and show their inner purity um and and as a, some of the time remove all the faff that you see around it you know the thudding music the over the top decors you know the you know the things that i think are, that sometimes people have attached too much uh, attention to and they forget sometimes about the 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 skill and the artisanal richness and the historical um, depth that so much of these dishes have within and it's about trying to show that in a really pure way um, which is primarily what I wanted to do. Now was that actually possible uh, with a shoestring budget um, in 2010? The answer was really no. Um, So we we designed a restaurant in a building that is very odd in itself, you know, its shape is very, very odd. Um, it's it's a very small site in, in general. Um, we had to make um, allowances and we had to compromise. But the finished product, um, although some journalists, they called it um, Ikea-esque, um, it, it had kind of like a, a Nordic, Scandic feel to the uh, interior, which, which, is, which fitted in with the natural kind of organic look. Um, and it was, I think it was an important uh, base for us to start on and, and an important base for us to start our journey on, on, on what has become um, a 10-year um, exploration into our cuisine and our celebration so of China. So R is very much, your mum is on board, I take it, from that conversation, or is she... What, would it take her? Did it take her more time to sort of come on board after the fit, after the the launch of the menu? How, like, what was what was that? What was that time for her like? I guess if you know. Well, I, I well, I think um, I think she just wanted to retire. <laughs> I remember that was her big fundamental priority. Just kind of, you take this on means that I don't have to do it anymore. So, um, good luck. <laughs> Uh, and I remember, as I said, she she didn't really interfere at all. Um, and when we first opened, we were having a nightmare. I remember. I remember I had the the, the biggest thing that I had it was just 
too many ideas and not enough uh, focus on the important things of running uh, specifically a Chinese restaurant. And I remember we were going around in loops. Um, I was rewriting the menu all the time. We were losing loads of staff because um, I was losing my patience um, with myself and a lot of people. Um, and, and I remember she came in one day and she said, look, you know, just relax. Um, you need to look after some sauces is what you need to do. I remember this. She, my mum's not even a trained cook. But um, she said, go and make you know, 10 or 11 sauces and use that as your centre point at which you build a restaurant around. And I just thought, you know, at the time, you know, with anyone, you know, whatever your parents normally say, you normally shunned straight away. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking rubbish. And then you kind of process it and you do it. It's like, oh, wow. You know, there might be some truth in this. And um, as I said, the advice I always give people now when they talk about, you know, Chinese food 101 is make some good sauces, um, store them. Um, and, and when you have that dinner party, uh, you bring them back out and you make your life a hell of a lot easier uh, once the, 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 the legwork for those sauces has been done in advance. It transforms um, every dish and from the functionality of a restaurant, it makes life a lot easier. Um, but people have to remember also that, you know, the restaurant 10 years ago is very different to the restaurant is now. You know, 10 years ago, I was, uh, we had a much smaller team. Um, I remember that I wanted to try to, to run the restaurant in a way that didn't rely on, um, Chinese expertise, shall I say. So I never had a dim sum chef. I didn't have a roasting chef, um, because I, I didn't want to get, um, engrossed in um, the labour shortage. So this was my, part of my concept. But actually, that's the one thing that um, I've had to... I, and I, I've, I've realised that is, is not the right way of thinking um, over the 10 years that we've been open. Because 10 years on now, what I have realised is that actually what we need to do is that we need to specialise this very... Um, artisanal skill within the Chinese kitchen. So we need to get the best dim sum chef. We need to get the best roasting chef. Uh, we need to get the, well, the, ro the wok chef, no, because actually the wok chef is the one area that we've managed to um, train. And my head chef now has been with me 10 years who was taught um, through us. So that was the part of the plan that did work. But for the rest of it, actually, I, I've realised that uh, for the success of the restaurant, um, having the best dim sum chef and having the best roasting chef um, is a requirement, um, regardless of how much I wanted to uh, save myself from any labour shortage further down the line. You know, but the, 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 the thought process was there. You know, with, with any plan, you know, if you can, you can implement 60, 70% of them, that's already good. Um, you know, we, we got the restaurant open. Uh, we went through a rough period. Um, I didn't get a dim sum chef until, until probably the second or third year that we were open. So I was still making all the dim sum myself every single day. Um, and, and then bit by bit, we, we made improvements. Um, and that's all I can really say. I mean, it, this, this entire 10-year period of the restaurant being open, it's only ever been about trying to make the restaurant better each day. Um, do have we ever had a grand plan? Not really, to tell you the truth. Um, we met people on the, along the way. We met food journalists along the way who wrote stuff about us. 
uh, mostly good, some bad. Um, we reacted to customer feedback on a regular basis. I reacted to the economy. I reacted to budget that we had all the time. We did more and more renovations throughout the years to try to improve the dining room. And it's just through a series of thousands of thousands of improvements um, is how we got to the restaurant being what it is today. And even now, you know, we look back at the restaurant now with, with all the wonderful things that we have achieved. I always tell the team every day is that we need to continue to improve every day. And the day we stop improving is the day that we should just shut the door. So then looking back, um, back to that research trip that you took while the restaurant was being refitted and you were relaunching as A Wong, what do you think were the really, really enduring lessons from that time in China, reconnecting through food and professional kitchens to your heritage? Or do you think these kind of um, incremental improvements every day, you're trying to push, get, get more quality, go, you know, get, get this kind of, you know, uh, kind of step progress in play. Do you think that's all about looking within now or looking out again to the restaurant sector and figuring out what you don't like or do like from the rest of the London scene. Like how, how much of it is still about that research trip and how much of it is just about reacting to the environment around you in terms of London and the culinary scene? Well, I think the, the, the most important thing about that research trip, which um, I think people sometimes they misunderstand is that it was never about traveling around to learn recipes that was i don't know whether or not that was intentional at the time because obviously i still have these scrapbooks where i was obviously writing down recipes or, or writing recipes or names of dishes or pictures of dishes but from a very early part of the trip i remember that it quickly became about spending time with people i don't remember this i remember it was I was working in a hotel in Qingdao and I was with a dim sum chef. So obviously, you know, Qingdao dim sum does not is not necessarily part of the part of Sandongese cuisine, which is where Qingdao is. Um but the dim sum chef there was from I think Sichuan again. So dim sum wasn't natural to her either and the head chef was from Malaysia. Uh, but together, they were they had very different understandings of what Chinese food was to them, you know whether it be comparing it to the Chinese food that they ate at home or the Chinese food that they thought was most delicious, or the Sandinese food that they were interacting with in the locality of where they were working, and from that point perspective, from that point onwards, I remember clearly that I was like, wow. Um, I never realised how different um, Chinese food meant for so many people within China. And that, to me, really opened the gate for the fact that it's not this closed microcosm that isn't open to change. It's open to interpretation, it's open to movement, and it's open to... um, interpretations and reinterpretations and self-interpretations. 
And I remember even going around China, there were chefs who were, who were, who were pushing boundaries. They were trying new things with Chinese cuisine. I remember I went to the restaurant Dadong in, in, in Beijing, who makes the most incredible duck. Um, and he has his own specific way of making his duck. And it was mind-blowing how good this duck was. But the traditional way of doing it, in the other part of Beijing, in a restaurant called Made in China, for example, or in, in loads of other restaurants in, in Hong Kong and other places that I tried it, it was equally as delicious. And it was just about understanding that idea that, you know, I was being as narrow-minded about Chinese food as sometimes the people that I was judging about their narrow-mindedness in looking at Chinese food. And that really became a point where I thought, you know what? There is scope to doing what I would call our Chinese food. Um, and that was fundamentally what we started to do when we opened the restaurant. Um, you know, what our, in inverted commas, means has changed over 10 years, but it's always, it's always been our Chinese food. And how much of the original kitchen, the people there, um, from your, from maybe, perhaps not your dad's time, um, but maybe, I don't know, um, but certainly before you relaunched, um, and also the layout and the kind of kitchen dynamics, like how much of it, it have you still kept or, and how, or how much of it has been transformed and, you know, it's almost beyond recognition. Um, so, I, you know, you have to be honest. I think the, 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 the majority of what the kitchen, what the restaurant was, it doesn't exist um, anymore. And I think anyone who comes to the restaurant now, I think they would be really clutching straws if they said that it was in, in any way uh, similar to um, my father's restaurant. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think there's certain things that my dad did better than I did. Absolutely. But I think in terms of the kitchen especially, you know, my dad never used to make dim sum. My dad used to have roasting meats. Uh, my dad never used to have a tasting menu, um, which is made up of 28 courses. Um, my dad never really had the necessity to have 15, 16 chefs. Um, my dad never had the necessity to have 16, 17 front of house people, one stroke, two sommeliers, um, you know, multiple people, um, doing multiple things throughout the day when we're open, when we're closed. It was just never a requirement. Um, so I think it's a very different restaurant altogether. But um, I think the only thing that is kind of a common trait between what my father did and I did is us. Um, it's that underlying um, understanding of... Wong family hospitality. Um, and I know that sounds very, very cliched, but I do think that that's, that's the magic behind why a lot of people will come back to a restaurant sometimes. It is that, that unsaid X factor of what the owners or the leaders or the, the people heading uh, these, these restaurants, how they interpret hospitality to all their guests. I just wanted to ask you one last question um, and that's really about views of success and uh, what struck me in our earlier interviews about your family was that you know your father you mentioned that you know he never intended to work 
in the restaurants every day, right? His idea of success would have been to build the empire, enjoy the fruits of it. Um, what about, what, what is it for you, success? Um, clearly you work in the restaurant more times, more days than not, if not every day. And perhaps it's always, you're always working in the restaurant, even when you're not in it. Um, what, what, what is your vision of success then? How do you see success? I think, I think you're absolutely right in terms of what my, my father's uh, interpretation of what success was. It was very much about, I said, trying to build a, a, a multi-restaurant company um, with him sitting at the helm, very much being an ideas person. And actually, he, he, probably, he probably could have done that if he was still alive. Um, you know, the execution part, I think, even with his small expansion... Uh, throughout my lifetime, I think was flawed slightly in the sense that he never really um, got the specialised labour in order to really um, up his his chances of success. And I think it's from that that I I learned that actually, you know, with with all businesses, you can take them up to a certain point, and then you have to um, you have to bring in specialised labour from outside in order to get you to that next level. You need to have people who have seen uh, what those next stages are in order for them to share their experience and wisdom with you to help you along your way. Um, of course, you can do anything, but, you know, trial and error, which, which I've done for many, many years, trial and error, make a mistake, fix it, try to not to repeat it again, do it repetitively until you find the right model that takes you down the right path. But over the years, the wisdom has been, well, maybe this isn't the best and most um, efficient way of doing things. And that is one of the successes of the restaurant, how I gauge it. I look at the restaurant now and I look at the, all the people that um, are part of our project nowadays. And I look at them, I'm just like, you could all do your things better than I could ever do them. Um, your level of knowledge is way beyond what mine is. But I think, and I always remind them of this, is that, you know, my job now as a, as a chef is not only about kind of um, coming up with new menus and, and, and working with wonderful people like yourself in order to keep the restaurant moving conceptually, but on a day-to-day basis, beyond just making dim sum with the team and going through service every, te- uh, every day with the team, it's about um, keeping the team together. And I think that has been the hardest thing. And I think that's been one of the biggest successes of our restaurant is being able to keep a community of people together over a 10-year period. And it hasn't been all, all people have stayed with me for 10 years, absolutely. But the day-to-day struggles of keeping that that group of people together in order for us to stay on the path of improving each day, that has been probably the largest success. And it's the reason why I think um, we have won multiple accolades, why we've won two Michelin stars. It doesn't come down to the menus by themselves, you know. The idea is okay, you know, maybe they're good, maybe they're not. But fundamentally, in order to make them a reality, it's the, the, I don't know whether or not it's a learned skill or... It's the anthropology. I don't know what it was that 
that I learned over the years of, or, or, or just hanging out with my dad and, and him being kind of a, a natural people's person. It's been about finding the multiple different ways in keeping that group of people together. Um, you know, I've spoken to people who've done MBAs and they're talking about management styles and this and that. I do it day in, day out without any management training whatsoever. Um, it's just about understanding people, understanding their backgrounds, understanding their culture, understanding that, you know, when chefs say things like one team, one dream, you realise that actually it's absolute rubbish. You know, you must respect people for their individuality. You have to respect them and, um, and celebrate them for their own individual goals that they want to achieve, their own indiv- individual motivations, their own individual aspirations. And I think it's because I understand that and because I've learned it over the past 10 years that we've kept the team together. And because of that, as a restaurant, regardless of what you say about our offering, we are extremely consistent as a restaurant. You know, the quality that we, we, we cook at every single day is very, very consistent um, because we keep that team together. I guess the one very, very final question I have then is where you would place A1 within the culinary sector in London. Do you consider yourself part of um, sort of the, the Chinese culinary sector or is it, does it speak to broader tastes and, and different kinds of geographies? Like what do you, what do you, where do you place A Wong? You know, where do we, where do we place A Wong? And again, again, I think it's also important that, you know, I think when some, some people, if they listen to this, for example, and they look at A Wong as a snapshot of what it is now, um, it doesn't tell the true picture. You know, what we are now, we are a restaurant that serves, again, a tasting menu only. You know, it is, on the grand scheme of things, probably at the higher end of, of restaurant dining um, in terms of budget. Um, but that was never always the case. Huh? I was, uh, Natalie and I always always look back at when we first opened and we were doing a, a three-course set menu with a glass of wine for £15. Um and unfortunately, you know, for, you know, for, for multiple reasons, you know, £15 won't buy you much nowadays at the restaurant. Um, uh, but where does it sit? I think it... I hope that what it, what it, where it sits now is that it sits within part of our community. But in a weird kind of way, I don't want the restaurant to be known as a Chinese restaurant. And I, I, I remember I texted you about this uh, a few weeks ago. I was like, I, I don't want the restaurant to be known as a Chinese restaurant because people are very quick to make um, blanketing assumptions when you, you put yourself with that title. And I always said that what I want the restaurant to be and hopefully continue to become is a restaurant that more celebrates China. And if that means that we are one foot in the community, one foot out of the community, if it means that we're one foot in um, a fine dining community and one foot out of the fine dining community, whatever it may be. But I do hope that one day when people look back at what we did, um, they may be as complimentary as I was, I, I have been, about 
restaurants like Huggers Land in the sense that I think the way we do things is unique. And I hope that when people look back at the, some of the stuff that we've done and some of the dishes that we've created and, and some of the, the, the beautiful stories that we, you and I have created over the last seven or eight years, they'll look back and go, you know what? That restaurant has changed um, my preconception on what I thought Chinese food was. Um, what, I, what I grew up with has been changed by the experiences that I had in A Wong. Now, if we can do that, then I feel like I'm not particularly worried about where it gets pigeonholed um, in, at this particular moment in time. Thank you for listening to part three of this special series of Exo Soust. See you next time.